So this table where we all just gathered together sometimes feels like the only place left in the whole wide world that brings everybody together. It is more than anywhere else. I really do believe in the whole wide world that is a great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you come from, even where you're going, where you are right now. We're all the same when we come to this place and we all need the same exact thing. So if there is an ideal, like an ideal of the New Testament teaching of being one in Christ Jesus, this is where we experience it the most. And it's the reason that the table and the sermon this morning in many ways are almost inseparable. And uh, as we proclaim a few passages here in a minute, I think you'll see why. Let's pray together. Our most holy and gracious God, we thank you for bringing us together as only you can bring us together. We thank you for the ways that you make us one that we could never do on our own. We put all faith and trust in you, in your promises, in the ways that you sustain us until the coming of the complete and new creation. In the meantime, we wait. We do our best to live as one. And we ask that you will equip us that much more to do your will as your one people. In the name of Jesus, amen. So my wife, Jen, is a member of the Houston Symphony Chorus. A lot of you know that, but just in case you don't know Jen, she's a member of the chorus. The reason I tell you that is that she gets free tickets to the Houston Symphony, um, which means that we have free date night every few weeks, it seems. And so last weekend, we went to the Houston Symphony and heard two different symphonies that was divided by halftime. And then, so after halftime, they played Wagner, you know, and it was like, ugh, tough music, and it was, it was just muscular. It was so exciting. But as they were playing Wagner, even though it was instrumental, I heard words. Like, I could hear actual words while this, this huge symphony orchestra is playing Wagner. And it was because of Bugs Bunny. Because I leaned over to Reese at one point, and I said, this is the Kill the Wabbit Symphony. <laughs> it really was. The French horns uh, started blaring in. La, 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 la. And I heard, and I know that Wagner didn't intend this, but I heard, oh, Brunhilde, you're so lovely. And Bugs Bunny responding back, yes, I know it. I can't help it. <laughs> and then Elmer Fudd coming back saying, oh, Brunhilde, 
be my wife. And again, I know that, that Wagner, I, Jen thinks he would appreciate that. I don't think that he would. But anyway, it's, it, I could hear this because of my childhood and even early adulthood. Every once in a while, you'd see a Bugs Bunny cartoon come on. But it introduced my generation and the generation before mine to so much classical music that we didn't realize you know, we didn't know at the time that we were listening to these, these marvelous pieces, but we were listening to them through very specific lenses. Well, the Tuesday night after last Saturday, so this past Tuesday night, they were practicing for the upcoming Christmas presentation of the Messiah. And their director had just gone to the Dallas Symphony fairly recently, to hear the Dallas Symphony uh, perform. So the director was telling, you know, the chorus, and Jen relayed this story to me afterwards, that as their director was sitting and listening to the Dallas Symphony, right, so dot, dot, dot. Think about the reaction you just had and what you're expecting me to say. Jen said as we were talking about this that one of the things that she expected, and I probably would have done the same, because, you know, in her world as therapists and my world as ministers and churches, we're conditioned to sort of hear the rest of that story in a certain way. And you may know where I'm going with this. She said that what she expected her director to say was, I just went and listened to the Dallas Symphony perform you know, whatever it was that they performed. And they weren't as good as us. Uh, they really needed to work on, you know, their tenors. But that's not what the director said. What the director said was, I know their director personally, we've been friends for years, and I can't tell you what an absolute just joy it was to get to listen to this symphony chorus that performed so well, it was so beautiful, so moving. And I just came home excited to get back to my chorus and us to get to work on our stuff. It was inspiring. I thought, man, that, that, that kind of hurt, you know? It was, it was telling. Because... You know, she expected, and again, I think a lot of us would have, we would have expected that the report back would be laced with criticism and comparison and, you know, competition. When what she brought, and it was kind of a nice little relief, was joy and gratitude and really, when it comes down to it, just downright fun. You know, it was fun to go listen to... And it got me to thinking about church. And not necessarily ours individually, but I'm just talking about church in general. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about 
bearing necessarily. We may have our moments, but I think for the most part we do pretty good. But just church in general, why does it just have to be so stinking competitive? Why is competition even on the table when what we are talking about is the story and life and gospel of Jesus Christ? Why does this have to be something that, that competition and comparison and criticism is even on the table? Why do, we, why do we go to that? Why can't, you know, like this recent experience and what frankly was kind of a wake-up call, why can't it be, you know, oh, we, we visited, uh, you know, our, our daughter's church up in wherever, and it, I was just, I was filled the whole time with joy and gratitude. And it was just fun. Because what we were talking about was the life and story and salvation of Jesus Christ. And it was just wonderful. And yeah, they did things a little bit differently. And the preacher's daughter during, you know, after communion played Jesus Loves Me on the bass drum. And, you know, it was, <laughs> it was different, but... But we talked about Jesus. And it reminded me who I was as a person of Jesus. And frankly, I couldn't wait to get back to our church on Sunday morning because you, know, you fill in the blank. Why? Why couldn't you wait to get back? You know, what's, what's really important? What's, what's most important? Our calling and our commission are more important than anything. They're more important than anything that we do or say. Love and serve God and people. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the current bearing mission statement. Love and serve God and people. What's our calling? What's our commission? That's it. Calling us to love commission is to serve. Calling is to love one another. Our commission is to go and make disciples. In here, out there, welcoming people in. I'm going to go a little old school this morning and read a group of passages to show this sort of ideal of one in the New Testament. And some of you may be familiar with this style of preaching. You remember this whenever, you know, somebody would read 30 passages of scripture and and, you know, they would, they would try to make them seem connected, and then you would walk out and be like, wait, what was the common thread? I'm only going to read four, but I promise you, you'll see the common thread. Every single one of them. And I think that out of these letters in the New Testament, where they come, like, like what originates them is this ancient ideal, another ideal of the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when we say... We are one in Christ Jesus. That's where it starts. Way back in the original old Shema from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That sets up everything that we are as the people of God. And we can't start there. We can't start with, well, we are one. That's where it originates, is in this this ancient one, the unity of the people of God as one, just as the Lord is one. All right, so four passages. Number one are on these little bookmarks that we printed for the fall. It's the very last line. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are, and if you know it, say it with me, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of languages, and to still another the interpretation of languages. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each one just as He determines. Starts with God and then it kind of ends and begins a new ideal with one more verse. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many different parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then one verse out of Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. But here's the thing about all these beautiful ideals, these beautiful images of the original Jesus people that in many ways just form a single ideal. The catch is they had to live out these ideals under tremendous persecution. And in some places, in situations of extreme danger, So, I just finished a stint with our youth group teaching the book of Revelation. And when we got to Revelation 17, you know the story, right? Okay, well, in case you don't know off the top of your head, Revelation 17 is about a prostitute sitting on a, a, a seven-headed dragon, 
And that seven-headed dragon has ten horns, which, you know, is uneven. And it's that way on purpose, to make a point. And the prostitute sitting on... The, your kids know this story, right? So they are... Uh, she's on the back of the seven-headed dragon, and she's drinking the blood of the saints. And so... We went through that story and then went all the way to the end of the book in Revelation 22. And last week when we were doing this, I said, okay, what if, and I didn't start it with a what if, so they got nervous. I said, y'all next Sunday are going to preach Revelation 17 through 22 and you've got to tell it in such a way to the people that it's going to build them up. And they were like, what? You know, everybody gets one verse, and you each get one minute. Seven of you. Well, that didn't go over. So we had another idea. I said, all right, well, here, here's something that we could do. If we were going to do that, if we were going to kind of all preach together Revelation 17 through 22, the way that you tell that story is by going back to chapter 13, sort of the very center of the book. Because you know what's in chapter 13? of Revelation, it, it's, it says this is what this calls for. This is how you get through all these severe persecutions as one people. As the one people of Christ, this is how you make it through these persecutions, these horrible times. And you know how you do it? It says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Therefore, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. So I said, what if, if we did this passage together, we get, uh, you know, out of back there, one of the long tables, you know, like one of the long tables, and we put a big tablecloth over one of the long tables, and the seven of you are going to um, be under the table, and you're going to poke your head out from under, each one of you are going to poke your head out from under, the tablecloth, and we'll pass out ten horns. And so, like, if one of you wants to wear ten horns and the rest of you, you know, or, or whatever, split them up. And then, I guess, because I'm going to tell the story, I'll sit on the table, kind of the, the prostitute with the blood and all that. I'm going to sit, so I'm going to dress up like Bugs Bunny as Brunhilde. <laughs> with a big chalice full of blood, and we'll tell the story of Revelation 17, 22. And as the entire church beholds this scene of a table with a tablecloth and kids with horns on their heads, seven of them poking out, representing the seven-headed dragon, and I'm dressed like Bugs Bunny and Brunhilde with a chalice full of, you know, it's not going to really be blood, but anyway, I'm going to do this. We'll tell them as they behold this sight. You have nothing to fear. <laughs> you have nothing to fear. Because way, way back, when they were originally telling that story, they didn't have the luxury of telling it in a way that was lighthearted and accessible. You know why the story 
of Revelation 17 through 22 that is rooted in the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that informs, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you know why they were able to say to the people of Jesus at that time, you have nothing to fear? Do you know why that stuck? It's because they felt like they had everything to fear. They lived in constant fear. They needed desperately to hear a word that said, you have nothing to fear. And I don't know how you live day to day. I know some of you, but overall, I don't know, if you live where things are pretty good and you just kind of rock on, or if you live in a lot of fear and anxiety and worry, wherever you are, the message is the same. You have nothing to fear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think once we tell that entire story, especially as we tell it as the body of Christ, it's going to call for some serious action on our part. So just for this week, here's some serious action this week. You know, not just listening to a sermon, but this is a call to action. Some serious action this week. Pray every morning when you wake up that God might give you to see and might give you the eyes to see holy love and faithfulness as each one of us goes through the week. Just eyes to see the holy and faithful work of God. And then every symphony you hear will just be absolutely great. And every time you hear Jesus is Lord, that will be great too. See, the real abundance that Jesus offers is an abundance of peace. And one of the places that we see that is in a place like this, where a group of like-minded people all fixing our eyes on the same thing, not on ourselves, but on Jesus is something that we can see where Jesus is the one who still writes our faith. So again, what's really important? And ultimately, what's most important? Calling and commission are more important than anything. We are called to love and serve God and people. We are called to desire God's mercy. We are commissioned to act on God's mercy. And we are commissioned to go and make disciples among and with everyone. We're doing really well on love and faithfulness and mercy. We really are. I I can't tell you enough, day after day and year after year, what a joy it is to be a part of a body of Christ like ours that does so well on love and faithfulness and mercy. But maybe it's time going into 2020 as we listen to God, to ask God to give us a renewed sense of what it means in this brave new world to go and make disciples. That may be an area in 2020 as we listen to God and pray 
to say to God, as we listen and pray, give us some eyes to see this and show us how to do this. And show us how to do this in this brave new world. How do we do this? In this place where we're living now, how do we go and make disciples? Amen.